Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together this evening and sit under your word. Thank you for the humility and love you show in allowing us to know you. Please help us to understand more about you this evening, and so be changed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We come to the end of our series in Romans this evening, and it's one of those passages that you'd be forgiven for thinking, travel plans and greetings. Great. But this little bit of the letter is worthy of your attention this evening because it is going to hammer home some of Paul's teaching through the letter and it's going to encourage us to unity in Christ. And this is a teaching that our 21st century church badly needs to get a hold of again. Now, particularly over the last few chapters, we've seen that unity among believers is really important. And in this last section, Paul is going to show us what this unity looks like, and he's going to underline what is at stake in us achieving it. We'll see first that unity is emotional. I'm sorry, but it is. We'll see that unity is working together, and finally we'll see that unity demonstrates the power of the gospel, and that is what at stake. If you're one of those people who likes taking notes, here's a heading for you. Let's get emotional. Now, I always get a little bit nervous when I hear someone say something like that. So let's give ourselves a bit of confidence and work out where we are in the letter. Paul's main argument is over. He's finished his explanation of what has taken place in Christ. In the language of Romans 6, we have been united with Christ into his death and his resurrection so that we may walk in the newness of that life. Now, last week, Alan took us through how Paul understood his own ministry. And that is the launching point for us this week. Because our passage opens with those words in verse 23, but now. We are in Romans 15, and it's on page 1142 of your church Bibles. The passage opens with those words, but now. Something has changed. Before, verse 22, Paul had been hindered from visiting the Romans because his work in the Eastern Med of church planting uh, had, he, it had stopped him. He had just been too busy. This kind of reads like a uh, kind of a semi-apology to the Romans for not coming to see them sooner, like we might give to a family member. Um, so I'm sorry, I wanted to come sooner, but I've just been too busy. I've been washing the dog or something. But now, but now, says Paul, he has finished that work, and Paul finally has the opportunity to see the Roman Christians. And this is something that he has longed to do for many years, verse 23. Now, I want you to get hold of that word, longing, because it sets the tone for our passage. This final section is littered with words, with hopes, with instructions, with prayers that are heartfelt and they are intimate. And Paul doesn't just long to see the Roman Christians. Follow with me. He looks forward to enjoying their company, verse 24. He looks forward to sharing in blessing, verse 29, to coming in joy and being refreshed with them, verse 32. This time in Rome for Paul, it's beginning to sound like a sigh of relief, kind of an oasis period at the end of quite a hard period of ministry. And this same language keeps going into chapter 16 as well, where Paul has a right little love-in with the Roman Christians. Look with me. Greet my dear friend Epinatus, verse 5. 
Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord, verse 8. Greet my dear friend Stachus, verse 9. Greet my dear friend Persis, verse 12. Greet Rufus' mother, who has been a mother to me, verse 13. And then there are those poor also-rans at the end, aren't there? Paul seems to say something nice about everyone but these people. They just get named. But you know what, at least they get a kiss, verse 16. And even that kiss is loaded with the same emotional involvement and intimacy that runs throughout this part of the letter. And then finally, Paul tells the Roman Christians how pleased he is with them. Look down into 16, verse 19. I am full of joy over you. This whole end of the letter reeks with emotion. And Paul is utterly unapologetic about it. It would seem that this is just the way the early Christians were. But why is this level of intimacy evident in the Christian community? It's not just enough to say that Paul was a Mediterranean type and that's the way Mediterranean types are. It is rooted in the basic theology of the letter. It is because of who a Christian is in Christ that this level of intimacy is possible. It is simply the appropriate response to what has been achieved in us in Christ. We'll come back to that later. But now I want to think about whether we as a church live in a community of of love and intimacy that Paul says is normal. For I've had a real sense this week that God is challenging us to recognise the value of emotion in our relationships. Not because it's nice and because it seems a vaguely Christian thing to do, but because such relationships arise from what has been done to us in Christ. What then are we to do about that? Let's stop being so English about it all. And I preach this to myself this evening, as well as to you. Let's not be so reserved about our feelings towards other people. If we value someone's friendship, we should tell them. Paul did, and so did Jesus. Also, let's do all we can to be lovable. It sounds absurd to say But if our brothers and sisters in Christ are trying to love us, let's not make it too hard for them. The way we act together when we meet and have coffee at the end is very important because it is all building this unity that Paul is wanting to say is really important to his gospel message. There is something about unity that is of value and he is underlining his gospel message with it. We'll come to that later. So let's free ourselves to engage emotionally with one another, because unity in Christ is emotional. So, let's get emotional. Second, let's get industrial. Paul was speaking of looking forward to refreshment uh, with the Roman Christians, but refreshment for what? Remember, this letter is written at a significant point of transition in Paul's career. He's, uh, He's run out of work to do in the East, verse 23, and now he is heading out for virgin gospel territory. Spain, verse 24. And in this kind of projected mission, he asks for partnership from the Roman church in two ways. First, he asks for material support. Look with me to 1524. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. Now notice that phrase, assist me on my journey, because this has already become a recognised Christian term for for supporting a missionary. Uh, It's like Paul is requesting to become a mission partner 
to the church in Rome. He needs their help for his missionary duties over in Spain. Second, Paul asks them to support him in prayer. Verse 30. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Notice two words in that verse. Notice urge and struggle. We have left the language of tender emotion now, and we are in the hard language of resolve and partnership. Paul is appealing to the Roman church to join in his work, to struggle together, standing side by side. Now, Winston Churchill was a master of this. We've just had Dunkirk, we just uh, remembered Dunkirk, and we could have chosen part of his Dunkirk speech, but I prefer this one. When it was said that um, England or Britain would have a neck wrung like a chicken, Winston Churchill replied, I'm not going to do the voice, but Churchill replied, some chicken, some neck. And it's wonderful. But what he's up to, he did it to inspire unity. He did it to inspire and partnership in a common purpose. And this is what Paul is up to by using that language in this chapter. Now, moving into the greetings. The last time he did it, we noticed that Paul's description of people was emotional. This time, it is industrial. Go through with me again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verse 3. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you, verse 6. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, verse 9. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who work hard in the Lord, verse 12. Greet Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord, also verse 12. There is a strong element of being united in a common work running all the way through this passage. But where does this unity come from? As we saw with intimacy, this unity is lodged in the theology of the letter. Now let me explain that. It is common, when we think of Romans as a whole, to try and separate it into two sections. You've got the theology of 1 to 11 on one side and the application of 12 to 15 on the other. Now, the danger of doing that, and it is a real danger, is that it suggests that what has been achieved in Christ, 1 to 11, can be held in isolation from the way we are now to live. Now, this is not the theology that I believe Scripture encourages us to believe. Rather, what God has done for us in Christ is to be the basis of the way we are now to live. If you like, 12 to 15 is to arise out from 1 to 11. It is precisely because of who we are by faith in Christ that we can live in the way Paul is outlining here. And unity from this common identity in Christ is a theme that runs down the spine of our reading tonight. Look again in those greetings in chapter 16. Nine times, nine times, he claims that their unity is either in Christ or it is in Jesus. Again, 15 verse 30, they are brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers by a shared belief in Christ as Lord. Brothers by a common inclusion into Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And it is because of their common identity in Jesus that they are united in their work. But they not only have a common identity, they have a common purpose of spreading the gospel, as Alan was teaching us about last week. So we've seen that believers 
are united in their common identity in Christ. Fine. But what are we to do about that? How does that change the way I'm going to go out and live tomorrow? We have to exist in partnership because that is the way we now are in Christ. Let's help each other and allow ourselves to be helped. Pride may have to be overcome for that second part, so overcome it in prayer. Get people to pray for you and pray for other people. Ask for practical support when it is needed and give it when it is asked. Do all you can to be partners with one another. Know that it's not only kind of okay, but it is good and it is right that you should be able to fire off a text to a friend and say, pray for me, help me, support me. That is who we are in Christ. Now, if you find yourself trying to live as a Christian without partnership, that is not God's will for you. It may not be your fault, but it is not the way we are made to live in Christ. We are made now to exist in partnership, a united body under the headship of Jesus. If you, conversely, if you are happy that you have strong partnerships, if you are happy that you have good, solid Christian friends, be on the lookout for those on the outside. For I dare say there are people here tonight who find themselves cast off from the body of Christ, and our souls should protest that that is the case. That's not the way we're made to live as new creations in Christ. My God is the God who took on flesh to die to bring the outcast in. We can go for coffee to do the same. But what is at stake in all this? Why is Paul so tumbling over himself to say, that, to talk about the importance of the unity that the gospel creates? It is because this unity he is showing us in this church shows that the gospel works. That is what's at stake. And that is our third heading. Because unity shows the gospel works. Back to Paul's situation in writing. He's planning to go to Spain via Rome. But before he does that, he's got just one more loose end to tie up. Verse 25. He is about to go to Jerusalem in a service to the Jewish Christians there. Now let's just think about that for one moment. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth. And he's saying he's just going to pop across to Jerusalem before going to Spain. Jerusalem is 800 miles from Corinth in the wrong direction to Spain. This isn't just like saying I'm going to pop down to the unthanked shops in a service of the saints there. Whatever this service is, it is of significant enough importance for Paul to add over 1,600 miles to his journey. Now verse 26 tells us that this service was delivering a fund for the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, there are three important things about this fund. First, it was made by Gentile believers to their Jewish brothers in Christ. It is from the Macedonians and Achaeans to the saints in Jerusalem. Second, the Gentiles were pleased, verse 26 and 27, to make the offering. Now, the third is not quite so clear in the versions we have here, but you see the word contribution in verse 26? If you just turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, you'll see it translated exactly the same word as fellowship. Now I tell you that because it is the language of common ownership, of communion, of sharing. And in doing this, Paul loads this fund 
with a theological significance. It's no longer just about alleviating poverty, as important as that is. And then Paul piles even more importance onto this fund when he asks for prayer that it will be accepted, verse 31. But the question that faces us is, what was it about this fund that made Paul go to such lengths to jump up and down and say, this is important, the stakes are high on this one? What was it about this fund that made him add 1,600 miles onto his journey to make sure it got there safely? What was it about this fund that made him label it with this theologically evocative word, fellowship? What was it about this fund that made him content to make its delivery the final and decisive event in his ministry in the Eastern Med? It's because it is a testament to the power of the gospel. This money is concrete proof of the solidarity of God's people in Christ. Now, this may need a little, a tiny bit of explaining, so stick with me for a bit. For the Gentiles, verse 27, it is true they have an obligation to repay the Jews. Read with me. For if the Gentiles, this is starting from the second sentence, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. The Gentiles respect the fact that the blessings of the gospel have come to them through the Jews. You remember the the slides that Mark had a few weeks ago. The Gentiles give to the Jews out of gratitude for their sharing in the Jewish Messiah. But we've got to weigh this obligation, this repayment, with the fact that it's repeated twice that they were pleased to do it. They also give to the Jews because they are loved brothers and sisters in Christ. For the Jews, on the other hand, to accept this money, that's a big deal too. Remember, Paul introduced this money as a fellowship. Therefore, for a Jew to accept this money is to accept fellowship from the Gentile. That is an impossible idea without Christ. That is an an impossible idea without the gospel because now it shows that the Jewish believers at the heartland of the Hebrew race in Jerusalem accept that the people of God are no longer the linear descendants of Abraham, but all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. This fund, then, is a tangible expression of the unity brought by the gospel. And it means that Paul can hold up this fellowship shared by Jew and Gentile and say, look, folks, This gospel I'm teaching, this works. This isn't just spiritual speculation. It has an impact on the way we now live. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event which we can be included in and so be brought to relationship with God and to each other. And it's the reality of our incorporation into Christ that makes this unity possible. It is this that leads Paul to call God the God of peace twice in these verses. It is this that lists him to reel off a list of greetings to a diverse group of Jew and Gentile, of women and men, of rich and poor, as a triumphant procession of people united in Christ. It is this that leads him to warn them away from false teachers, verse 16, 17, because these false teachers, they bring division, and division is not an outworking of the gospel. 
unity is. And this unity the gospel creates is godlike, for he is the God of peace. This, then, is the heart of the issue that Paul is getting at here. When we love one another, when we care for one another as a community united in Christ, when we struggle alongside one another, we testify to a watching world that together we are one people, united in Christ. And that shows the power of the gospel. The unity of God's people demonstrates to the world This gospel works. And if Paul was so concerned that unity should be a characteristic of Christians, then alarm bells should start to be ringing in our heads, and we should be asking, what is it then about our community here at Holy Trinity that shows the gospel works? We should be in partnership, both in intimacy and in working together, for that is who we now are in Christ. So by living in that way, we will demonstrate the effectiveness of the gospel and hold it up as true to a world that needs it so badly. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we may be a church who live as we are in Christ, that we may learn to love one another, that we may struggle alongside one another, so that outsiders may look on us and see the truth of the gospel. They would see that Christians, they separated by years and generations, by nationalities and by personalities, by gender, by age, are united by a common belonging in Christ. The gospel that brings all nations, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen.